When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. So the meditation, we could say, is a refinement of the perception of impermanence. Mm. From that, the whole world of Dharma opens up. We begin to see that nothing in and of itself will be ultimately satisfying because nothing lasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Unlikely Collaborators, the only way forward is inward. Later on in this episode, I'll talk a lot more about the Perception Box and how it relates to this episode. But right now, let me tell you about today's guest. Today, we welcome Joseph Goldstein to the show. Joseph is a co-founder and the guiding teacher of the Insight Meditation Society, along with Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg. He is one of the first American Vipassana teachers and has been teaching Buddhist meditation worldwide since 1974. A contemporary author of numerous popular books on Buddhism, his publications include Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, One Dharma, Insight Meditation, and others. In this episode, I talked to Joseph Goldstein about Buddhism and the impermanence of life. Being too attached to the self can bring suffering. However, this doesn't mean that we need to forego our identities or self-care. Joseph explains that enlightenment can be achieved when the mind is free from clinging. He talks about the different states that can help us realize the insight of impermanence and selflessness. We also touch on the topics of mindfulness, compassion, creativity, and wisdom. This discussion was really rich and involved a lot of mutual areas of interest and a lot of translation going back and forth between the kind of phrases and terms used in my field of psychology and the kinds of terms and phrases that are used in Buddhism. So this was a really exciting discussion for many reasons. So without further ado, I bring you Joseph Goldstein. Joseph Goldstein, so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast, finally. Glad to be here. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're laughing uh, for our audience because we had some technical difficulties. But I tried to, throughout the whole process, I tried to apply um, the things I've learned from you to <laughs> to not get get caught in the story. You've 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 said something really interesting at one point about. Uh, I'm trying to uh, paraphrase it, but we are completely lost in the movie, but nothing substantial is really happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's I think how you described our consciousness yeah. and often a lot of the time we get so caught up in it and uh you know 10 minutes from now you know is it really going to matter that much <laughs> exactly it's a, it's a good perspective to, to keep <laughs> for sure for sure so anyway we're making this work so you are co-founder of the insight meditation society and you founded that many years ago and is that right mm-hmm. in the 80s was that in the 80s is that 89 76. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So it's, al- it's almost 50 years. Wow. Well, well, congratulations. That's, that, I mean, that's incredible. It's incredible to, to, to do anything that long, you know, is yes. anything, <laughs> anything, you know, that long is, is yeah. really incredible. A marriage, uh, a business, <laughs> yeah. uh, really anything. So how old were you in seven? May I ask that? Is that inappropriate? inappropriate to ask that? How yeah. old were you in yeah. 76? So in, I was uh, 32. Okay, so you were 32 years old. What? A kid. You were a kid. <laughs> you were a kid. How old are you now? <laughs> I am 44. 44. Well, I look so no like, longer a kid. <laughs> I look like a kid, though. <laughs> I, look, I still, look, still look like a kid, especially when I shave. So my question is, like, how did you get interested in Buddhism? You know, what, at what age did you really start to get into it? And what I really want to grasp here with you is what really resonated the most with your soul back then you know what was it what was it about it about the principles that that most resonated with your soul first just to say within the context of buddhism soul is not really one of the words we use (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny Uh, but but leaving that aside we can we can use it for in a convention fair enough and and, well i mean we can go further we can say when i say what resonated most with you you'd say well technically there is no me I don't, well, even, I don't even identify with me. So, okay, there's there's so many things wrong with my question there, but um, uh, you know, interpreting it however you will as a layperson, you know, as a civilian. Yes. No, I got I got the meaning of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it. no, it's true. It's true. First, was introduced to Buddhism in the Peace Corps after college. I went into the Peace Corps, sent me to Thailand, and I had studied philosophy at college. So my mind was kind of interested, although I didn't really know anything about Buddhism at the time. Uh, but I started going to these discussion groups that some Buddhist monks were holding for Westerners in Bangkok. And so I would go to these meetings and really interesting to me. But having studied philosophy and given the quality of my mind, I was asking endless questions just in these small groups. People stopped coming to the group because I was going because I was being so annoying with all my questions. Oh, no. So one of the monks finally said, uh, Joseph, you know, you might want to try meditating. And of course, I was young. At that time, I was like 21 years old. You know, I didn't know anything about meditation. So it was all very exotic. It was my first time in the Far East. So, oh, that sounds great. Get my paraphernalia together to sit. I set my alarm clock for five minutes. So I didn't want to sit too much, but something really happened in that five minutes. And it wasn't that it was any great enlightenment experience. Rather, just in that five minutes, I saw that there was a way to look into my mind instead of simply looking out through it. 
Mm. You know, so it was like a turning in place and seeing that there was a methodology for looking into the mind. So that was incredibly exciting for me. It was just like a revelation, you know, that I could systematically watch my own mind. Mm. I got so excited that I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> of course, they didn't come back. But, uh, yeah, so that was my, that was really what captured my interest. And then uh, gradually started to sit for longer than five minutes. And by the end of my time in the Peace Corps, I realized that I wanted to pursue it, but that I really needed a teacher. So I had gone back to the States after, after my Peace Corps stay, realized I wanted to teach it, and then went back to the East to look for a meditation teacher. And I ended up in India, in Bodhgaya, where you know, that's the place where the Buddha was enlightened. And I met my first teacher there. Now, when did you come across Jack? Cornfield that wasn't for many years later when Sharon, I yeah. came back for the last time from India. That was in 1974. And it was just, that was the year that Trungpa Rinpoche was setting the Ropa Institute up, uh, you know, a kind of Buddhist, Buddhist college, university in Boulder. In those years, it was just summer sessions. But Jack and I uh, both ended up at Naropa in that summer. And that's where, where we really became uh, friends and finally collaborators. And then where did uh, when did Sharon pop up on the scene in this movie? Well, Sharon I knew from my time in India. Oh, wow. You, did you meet her in India? Yeah. Wow. So I so met cool. her in 19, I think it was 1970. Holy yeah, 1970, cow. when she came to Bodhgaya to sit one of the first Goenka courses. Yes, so that's when we met. And you guys were kids. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you have any pictures from that time? Do, right. you, do you have any pictures from that time? Probably someplace. So, yeah, some early pictures. So, yeah. No, well, Sharon's a, a dear friend of mine, and I yeah, she said, and she said to say hello. By the way, thank you. Cool, cool. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's so cool to hear this origin story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, of, of all three of you, in a way, you know, real pioneers in. I know modesty is all important and everything in Buddhism, but you all are pioneers uh, on bringing a lot of these ideas to the West. So there's so much to discuss today, and so much I really want to, uh, like, a, so much nuance in this. You know, w one thing is this idea of enlightenment, and depending on your school of thought, your philosophy of Buddhism, there's, there are very different metaphysical systems of what enlightenment means, but I've, I, I read that you, you argued, well, roughly, there, you know, there's a thread that seems to run through all of them, and that's enlightenment is when the mind is, is free of clinging. Do you still stand by that statement? Uh, and then can you unpack for me a little more what it means to be free of clinging to your thoughts? So for, be, before getting into that, I have... A I have a new favorite definition of enlightenment. Oh, excellent. I'm glad I asked this then. Yes. <laughs> It'll be worth elaborating what you just asked. <laughs> uh, my new favorite definition is lightening up. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is really a process of just lightening up. Really like that. <laughs> and unpacking that a little bit more, which, which dovetails into the more classical Buddhist definitions of it, it really become, means becoming less and less self-centered. Mm. 
you know, less self-referential. And for most of us in our lives, we are the center of our lives. <laughs> there is this sense of self. So that, that in a way, self-centered can have a kind of more superficial psychological meaning. You know, we say somebody's really self-centered. So we know what that means conventionally. But if we drill down a little deeper, self-centered that is centered around a self. Mm. And the whole Buddhist path is really seeing the selfless nature of this whole mind-body process. So in that sense, lightening up means weakening the sense of self-center and finally uprooting it, which is in classical terms, the first stage of enlightenment with a view where we, we're seen beyond the view of self. And that, that belief, that view is actually uprooted at that point. And so in classical terms, that's what's called stream entry, entering the stream to, to enlightenment. I love all these visuals as well. They're all very like <laughs> ocean related. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. No, I love it. Uh, can you be self-focused at times without being selfish. Uh, I think a lot about this, you know, what is it always bad uh, being self-referential? Is that o not I, I again bad is a judgment a judgment call that's not very buddhist to me either, but but it, it leading to can you still be leading to enlightenment and, and be self-focused? Yes. So there are a couple of things here. Great. Unpack One this is, for me. Yeah. Even though the the kind of essence really the core of the buddhist teachings is understanding and realizing selflessness still we use that word in a conventional way just for purposes of communication you know so that's fine i'm, I'm not suggesting we give up the idea you know just using common language so in this sense and i'll give you an example of it when one is doing the loving kindness practice, you know, in Pali it's called metta, we direct loving wishes to a sequence of categories of beings, starting with oneself, then a benefactor, a friend, neutral person, difficult person, and then all beings. And the idea is to equalize the quality of our loving kindness and loving care among all of those categories, including what we conventionally call self. Right. So it very much that's that's part of the well-wishing and the caring for all beings. So all beings include ourselves. Yeah. Right? So there's no so taking care in a skillful way. And it, it doesn't have to be in what conventionally we would call a selfish mode. It really can come out of a wisdom. It's like we take care of our health. You know, that's not being selfish. It's being wise. Uh, so there's no problem with that. But it's to understand that we're using the term self there conventionally. It would be very awkward to say, oh, I'm going to take care of this mind-body process constituted from, with the five aggregates. 
I mean, self is just a, a shorthand for that whole rigmarole. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we use it conventionally and, and it's, it's helpful. I really appreciate that clarification. You know, I have been, I've been obsessed with a certain paradox I noticed in my psychology research, and that's that it seems like the most psychologically healthy people have the strongest sense of self. You know, and so just let that sit there a moment, what I just said, because it's very, very interesting. I'm trying to um, integrate this with, with Buddhist philosophy, because we find over and over again, those who are, you can even say the inverse, those who have the highest levels of anxiety, stress, depression, and even what we call vulnerable narcissism, tend to report, uh, there, there are actually scales on the extent to which you have a sense of self, report feeling um, like they're constantly shape-shifting depending on right, the right. they don't feel like they know who they are at all yeah, yeah. They don't feel any sense of self so is this compatible can we com can we integrate these literatures in a way because on first pass they seem incompatible but i bet yeah. they're not i bet they're not at they're all not. they're yeah. not because again <laughs> di different systems of understanding often use the same word meaning different things. Mm. So when you're comparing the different systems, Good. thinking that they're referring to the same thing, because the word they're using, like self or ego, is the same in psychological, in the psychological paradigm and the Buddhist paradigm, they are using those terms very differently. So my understanding, and I'm not a therapist, I'm not a trained psychologist, but, you know, from what I've learned over all these years. Me neither, by the way. <laughs> okay, so I can say anything, man. <laughs> when psychologists use the term self or ego, my understanding is translating that into buddhist terms yeah would be a healthy balance of mind good i like that when the when the term self or ego is used just in the buddhist sense that's referring to the idea that there is some unchanging entity residing within us and that was what i was referring to it the very beginning of our conversation with respect to the word soul mm. you know as if there's some unchanging Essence. core being mm. hiding out in us so that's what the buddha said is not that's a mistaken view of what this mind-body process is all about so they're just using the terms differently uh, I love and, that. and i think the buddhists would agree that and part of the path to have a healthy sense of self in the psychological sense is essential. Mm -hmm. You know, we and, and a lot of the practice is accomplishing that balance of mind. You know, so so again, they, they complement one another really well. Yeah. I am so excited to announce that registrations are now open for our self-actualization coaching intensive. While the coaching industry has taken great strides over the years toward integrating more evidence-based coaching approaches, there's still a lot of work to be done. 
Many coach training programs still lack strong foundations in science and do little to incorporate research-informed tools, methodologies, or approaches for helping clients thrive. For 20 years, I've dedicated my career to rigorously testing ways to unlock creativity, intelligence, and our potential as human beings. Now, for the first time ever, I have compiled some of my greatest insights to bring the new science of self-actualization to the field of professional coaching. This immersive three-day learning experience will introduce you to self-actualization coaching, an approach intended to enhance your coaching practice by offering you evidence-based tools and insights from my research that will equip you to more effectively help your clients unlock their unique potential. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Join us and take your coaching practice to the next level. Go to sacoaching.org. That's sacoaching.org. I look forward to welcoming you in December. I find the Buddhist perspective so beautiful, and it has impacted me personally so much. As I was writing my book, Transcend, I came across some writings from the humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow, where he put it this way, and I want to see how this resonates with you, because it really resonated with my, not not S word, <laughs> with my being. <laughs> what he said is that the purpose of self-actualization is to erase itself. He said, I that. that was so beautiful. Absolutely, I love it. <laughs> and, and then he said, he, I mean, he had such a way with words, you know, Maslow. And then he also said, if done right, self-actualization really is just allows you to walk the bridge to transcendence. And that's, that's how I view it. You know, when I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I talk about self-actualization, and I really, my whole research program is about self-actualization, I don't mean it as, as an individualistic pursuit, devoid yes. of context of the world. But I actually do think that self-actualization, though, is a really important step on the path to transcendence. And I don't think the Buddhist would ever say that, you know, it, it, we shouldn't have self-actualization. We should only, you know, uh, I don't know, have, we should have no sense of self. I mean, all, that's just such a mischaracterization of, of, of Buddha, the way the Buddha thought about this, right? Yes. Yes. Again, it just points to that they, they're using the word self in two different ways. So in the way that Maslow is using it, hmm. as I say, it, it fits in perfectly. And, and I love the, the quotes you said, because yeah. in self-actualization, the self disappears and becomes yeah. the doorway to transcendence. That, that could be another in a Buddhist perspective. That could be saying, yeah, when all the factors of enlightenment are in balance, yes. it leads to transcendence. Yes. But if you do it too quickly, like if you just lose, some, one day you wake up and you've lost all sense of self, that's a very jarring uh, situation for a human. That's, that, that'll put you in a mental institution. <laughs> like that'll, that'll, I mean, that that's, can be scary, you know, if you it, it, devoid from the self-actualization journey, you know? Yeah, but, but uh, in the way you express that? Yes using the term self in the psychological yeah. sense, yeah. it doesn't make sense to say somebody who realizes that the, the non-self too early, mm. they go off a bit. Yes. <laughs> because using that term in the psychological sense, it's like saying, Losing the sense of balance of mind mm. is a good thing. 
because in the way you framed the question, it was like if you lose the sense of self too early, mm. that's like saying losing the sense of balance too early. That can't be good for exactly. psychologically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's a false, it's like a red herring, mm. you know, to say losing the sense of self too early. Because mm. self in the psychological meaning yeah. really means just a, a healthy balance of mind. And of course, one doesn't want to lose lose that healthy balance. Yeah, one doesn't want to lose that yet. That, that's great. That's a great sort of reframing of it. Yeah, I think it's clearer. Because as I say, Much using clearer. the word self, because it has different meanings in psychology and Buddhism, unless sure. you're very precise in how you're using the term, it gets confusing. Definitely, definitely. I mean, there's like... 400 different definitions of the word self in psychology. Yeah, yeah. I don't even want yeah. to ask in Buddhism. Um, but it is interesting. Like, what do we even mean by the self? You know, Mark Leary, uh, the social psychologist, tends to view the self as just the apparatus that allows for self representations. <laughs> it can get so complicated. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, th and that's in one way. That's why the meditation is so such a powerful force because we begin to let go of a lot of the descriptions and which can get really elaborate and we just come into the simplicity yeah. of the moment-to-moment -moment experience and it becomes much easier to understand well it's funny uh I, my friend Sam Harris, and I believe you knew Sam maybe when he, he was young. Oh, yeah, we were old friends. <laughs> yeah, he was probably very young, you know, and uh, uh, when you first met him. But uh, yeah. when, when, when we became friends, he was a little, quite a bit older. But his response to like a lot of arguments, you know, especially about free will, you know, <laughs> is, his answer is just, just meditate more, Scott, and you'll see that I'm right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just, just, just you know, like, like, okay, all the arguments and logic and reason and yeah. science. Just, yeah. Scott, you need to meditate more. I believe that's how you responded to me on Twitter once, and uh, and then we we obviously have in person conversations about this all the time. Yeah. But it, but anyway, this is funny. So there's a lot of insight that can be gained from this first person experience of meditation and mindfulness. Can you just like give me a little bit of a list of some of the the potential forms of insight that are available to us through a regular mindfulness practice? Yes. So there's one insight, which is really the doorway to all the others, hmm. right? So, and, and it's a, it's a very easy insight to relate to. Hmm. And that is through the meditation, we get a very direct, immediate experience of the changing nature of everything. <laughs> and in, in the Buddhist sort of classic phrase is, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Oh, wow. And this, ha this happens oh, wow. on every time scale. Wow. So you can look at on a macro level, mm. you know, clusters of galaxies, you know, on their own time scale, they come into being and eventually they die down to the subatomic particle level. <laughs> It's in constant movement, constant change, and everything in between. So what's interesting to me is that we could go up to anybody on the street and ask them, do things change? And I think everybody would say yes. 
and yet we don't live that understanding, right? So we, we, it's not difficult to grasp conceptually, but meditation gives us an, a certain immediacy of experience of that and on increasingly refined levels. So there's something I call in meditation, I call NPMs, which are noticings per minute. <laughs> so when we first begin our practice, the NPMs are not very high. I don't know, maybe 10 noticings a minute. But as the practice goes on, those NPMs go way, way up. So just a very simple example, people often begin meditation maybe feeling their breath. You know, at the beginning, they experience, oh, yeah, there's the in-breath and the out-breath. Hmm. But as the mind gets clearer, more concentrated and steadier, begin to see that the in-breath is a flow of innumerable, more microscopic sensations. It's not one thing. Mm -hmm. Within one in-breath, there is so much going on mm -hmm. in terms of what can be felt. So the meditation, we could say, is a refinement of the perception of self, of mm -hmm. refinement of the perception of impermanence. Mm -hmm. From that, the whole world of Dharma opens up because when we've really seen that not only with the breath but with every aspect of our experience you know just the momentariness of the flow of sights and sounds and smells and sensations of the body and thoughts and emotions the whole world we begin to see that nothing in and of itself will be ultimately satisfying because nothing lasts so it may be it may be satisfying in the moment, and it might be pleasant in the moment and happiness inducing in the moment. But because of this universal truth of everything continually changing in motion and flow, there's nothing which is going to provide lasting satisfaction because nothing is lasting, you know, and that just becomes yeah. increasingly obvious. And a corollary of that is that if we're attached to that which is changing, to that which in its very nature is to change, we'll suffer. Because it's like somebody used the example of it being like rope burned. You know, somebody's pulling a rope through our hands and we're holding on to it tightly. Yeah. We get rope burned. Well, that's what we're doing in our lives very often. We're holding on tightly to different aspects. And of course, when they change, we suffer. Mm. You know, And this is where it comes back to what you said in the beginning. And one of the essence teachings is that clinging is the cause of suffering. Yeah. And that freedom is in letting go of the grasp. So you can see perhaps how all of the Dharma can unfold from the experience, from the refined experience of impermanence uh, yeah that, that's beautiful and the more you i practice that i, I clearly am okay with the everyday nuance uh, everyday annoyances <laughs> but there's something i want to really dive really deep into and in the psychology field there's 
great debate and discussion around the difference between mindfulness and flow. It seems like when you're in the flow state of consciousness, at least as defined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, you're not constantly checking in and watching your thoughts. You're 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 just in it. <laughs> and so it, you know, a, a liberation doesn't always require every moment you're the metacognition, right? The metacognition, the thinking about well, thinking, does it? Because when you're in the flow you're, state, yeah. Well, we'll unpack this a little bit. Unpack it. I think that's confusing two different mental qualities. Okay. Uh, mindfulness and concentration. So these two are, have different functions in the mind. Okay. So in the flow state, so another, another word for concentration is undistractedness. So when you're in a flow state, the mind is not distracted. Right. Right. You're just in the flow. So that's, that really describes a state of concentration rather than the quality of mindfulness. Because we could be in a flow state, a concentrated state, without learning anything from it. Mm -hmm. It feels good. I mean, and it's, it's a powerful state. I, I don't want to undervalue mm. that aspect because it is actually part of the whole path. But it's not mindfulness. Right. And it's not it's not necessarily connected with wisdom. It does have the attributes of effortless effortless flow. <laughs> you know, where the mind's not distracted, it's just completely in the flow of whatever the activity is. And there's something very fulfilling about that. Mm. But that's that's different than developing insight or developing wisdom. So it's just two different things. Yeah, and I think that's the pretty much the consensus, and a lot of people do agree on that in the field that there are different constructs. Yeah. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Today's conversation with Joseph really illustrates the importance of expanding the walls of our perception box. The perception box is the invisible mental box that we all live inside, and it can seriously hinder our ability to understand one another and to understand ourselves. In this episode, Joseph points out that a major insight of Buddhism is that whatever arises can pass away. Joseph astutely notes that we can refine our perception of impermanence so that we aren't so attached or clinging to the thing which is changing. From a perception box perspective, when we are caught in our story tangles, we can have difficulty seeing anything but the things we should do or become. Using the tools of meditation, self-reflection, breathwork, somatic experiences, and other modalities helps you get a distance from the stories you tell yourselves so that you can have more equanimity about how to move forward. What's beautiful about impermanence is that no matter how permanent something feels, there is an equanimity in perceiving that it too shall pass. Even though you will never get out of your perception box, you do have agency where its walls are and what stories you believe about whatever you are experiencing and the impermanence about it. To find out more about Unlikely Collaborators and the Perception Box, go to unlikelycollaborators.com. You know, the flow state is so conducive to creativity. And to, you know, when, when jazz improvisers are 
sure. doing uh, their thing. They're, you know, they're all, they're, they're kind of in the flow. So when you're jamming, when you're really jamming, yeah. um, certainly that can be a path to wisdom, right? I mean, do you always have to have metacognition to lead to wisdom? Well, again, so this, this will depend on your definition of wisdom. Mm. You know, people, people could use that word in a lot of different how ways. How do you define wisdom? Well, if we were going to define it in the context of Buddhism, mm. you know, so there's a very specific parameters. Wisdom really has to do with insight into what are called the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. Mm. So those are the insights which lead to non-grasping. Now, what's interesting about concentration, concentration state is, and this is true of just meditative concentration as well as kind of a flow state. At that time, in the Buddhist language, the hindrances are suppressed. So in the flow state, there could well be non-clinging mm. because we're just in the flow of the changing phenomena. Yeah. But without the metacognition, so the non-clinging is suppressed during that time. But then when we're out of it, it just comes up again, mm. right? And is reactivated really because we haven't really brought our investigation to the experience of the flow. Mm. So in that time, the, mind's, the mind is in a very good place but it's not necessarily developing the wisdom hmm. uh, that will purify the mind. Wow. And, and that's why in Buddhism, like, the development of concentration is an important part of the path. Hmm. You know, so it's really an essential aspect. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Hmm. You know, so it's a, that state is very much appreciated for many qualities it brings but there are certain qualities it doesn't bring, right? And that's really the, the investigation quality of mind. Yeah, I hear you, and I, I can see clearly how that fits onto the, some of the primary creativity frameworks in the field of psychology where you distinguish between the insight phase, the incubation phase, the evaluation phase. I mean, creativity, the whole creative process involves different states of consciousness at different times. And yeah, absolutely. Valuation stage is an important part of the creative process, which is often separate from the flow state, often separate from the idea generation stage. Right. And, and I've been really interested in different forms of meditation influencing those different stages of creativity. Researchers have found that open monitoring meditation is correlated with divergent thinking, whereas more return to the breath meditation is correlated with convergent thinking in, in the creativity framework. Yeah, but I, I don't know what those terms mean oh, okay. with reference to creativity. Yeah, so in the in the creativity field, divergent thinking is thinking as many possible ideas as possible. You're not evaluating any of them. You're just letting you're just generating free association. Generating new ideas. Yeah. Convergent thinking is you're trying to figure out well what is what are the best ones? You know, what are what what is what is the one best answer? You know, when you take a SAT. Right. The SAT is not about generating possibilities; it's about giving what's what's the answer, right? So, um, so I, I have found that interesting that different forms of meditation jog or stimulate different 
stages of the creative process. Yeah. You know, just interesting. So in terms of my own uh, playing with creativity in mm-hmm. recent years, uh, maybe in the last five years or so, I started writing poetry, which I wow. did, which I did in my twenties, but yeah. have not really since then. So it's kind of a new thing, and it's kind of the evolution of it has been really interesting, because in the first excitement of doing it, I had this rather sophomoric idea that the first things out of my mind on paper were brilliant. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that in a way that was that was kind of the divergent. Yeah. You know, whatever comes up, you know. Yeah. But then I, I was getting some advice from a very uh, well-established uh, poet friend, mm. and her the best piece of advice she gave me in the creative process was that it's all about revision. <laughs> You know, and I just yeah. found that to be so true because, okay, you know, the initial creative, you know, you're playing just with different ideas and you get something yeah. down, but then that's just the beginning and the crafting of it is cutting away everything that's extra and, you know, finding just the right word. Uh, so it, it feels like it's connected a little bit to what you just said. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. I mean. Show me the person who's happy with their first draft of a book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Um, no, yeah. that's that 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 that's right. So, but yeah, just just uh, recognizing there are different states of consciousness. I guess it doesn't seem very Buddhist. I want to be critical for one moment. I want to see how you respond to this. Yeah. It just doesn't seem very Buddhist part of the philosophy to label certain states of consciousness as the liberating states and others as not liberating or not leading to enlightenment, kind of making that pre-judgment call, I feel like the Buddha made that judgment call. So tell me if I'm wrong. But no. No, I definitely did. He did, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so much. Okay. This question can lead to kind of uh, an, elaborate, an elaborate discussion. On the first level. I like that. I like elaborate discussions. Yeah. <laughs> On the first level, the Buddha was really clear. He kind of divided mind states into those which are wholesome, mm, right. unwholesome, and neither. And basically, the wholesome means conducive to different kinds of happiness, mm. unwholesome, the causes of suffering. Mm. So in a very simple way, and the Buddha, he laid out really clearly the three wholesome and unwholesome roots of all the other mind states. Mm. So, for example, greed and hatred and delusion, Mm. they are unwholesome mind states. They do not lead to liberation. They lead to suffering. And and there are many, those are the roots, and then there are many other unwholesome states based in those three. Mm. The three roots of wholesome mind states on non-greed or generosity, non-hate or loving-kindness, and non-delusion, which is wisdom. Hmm. Those are the states that do lead to happiness and to awakening. Hmm. So on this level, and as we're walking the path, that discernment is really important. You know, are we cultivating more greed in what we do, or more anger, more hatred? 
are we cultivating more generosity, more love, more understanding? So, and to be able to see, you know, through meditation, to really get a very clear, visceral experience mm. of the effect of these different mind states. So this is, this is basic, essential to all the schools of Buddhism. However, or in addition, at a certain level of meditative practice, we also see that all mind states, mm. you know, in Buddhism, we use the word empty a lot, emptiness a yeah. lot. And, it, it really, and that can have a lot of different meanings, but some of the meanings are insubstantial or no inherent self-existence to them. And so on another level, for example, the different contents of our thoughts on this level, it doesn't really matter whether it's a greedy thought or a loving thought. If we're in that place of seeing the momentary, the momentary insubstantial nature of all thought, mm. yeah, so then it's then it's just a thought arising in the mind. The content really doesn't matter because we're not identified with it. And it's just coming and going. And because we're not identified with it or clinging to it, the content is less important. Mm. It's just that. So uh, there's a, there was a Zen teacher, Korean Zen teacher, Sung San, San Sanim. Mm. It started the Providence Zen Center and then a lot, you know, he was very popular and had lots of branch monasteries. He had, a, he had an interesting phrase expressing these two levels what i just mentioned he said there's no right and no wrong right but right is right and wrong is wrong <laughs> so we have to hold both that's what i'm trying to get at is it seems yes. so somewhat contradictory it's, it's not it's contradictory not, it's at not, all it's, it's just not. two different levels but unfortunately and many great masters have pointed this out that the attachment to the notion of emptiness is much more dangerous than the attachment to things. Because with attachment to things, you can work on it. Mm. If you're attached to the notion of emptiness, it leads to that sense of, oh, it doesn't matter what I do because everything's empty. Mm. Which is a very dangerous state because for two reasons. One, that's really attachment to the idea of emptiness, not to the realization of it. Mm. Right? If one had fully realized emptiness, then there would be a great freedom in that. But until we're fully enlightened, we are living on that more relative plane where right is right and wrong is wrong. And not to acknowledge that level leads to huge a huge amount of suffering, you know, and, and we see it with a lot of a lot of Buddhist teachers who get into big trouble, or teachers of every tradition, really. Sure, you know, who, who may have had some realization or some understanding, and then think that whatever they do is the perfect expression of enlightenment. I call that spiritual narcissism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. it's it's very dangerous to just take. Yeah one of those two levels and not integrate both of them. Wow, you're a very wise man, Joseph Goldstein. 
No, I wouldn't miss that listing. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I hope you heard that. I hope you heard that. <laughs> you know, the context in which I was thinking about this was the, the kind of difference between the mindful, the neuroscience of mindfulness research literature and the neuroscience of creativity research literature. Um, I've been trying to really integrate those literatures because in the mindfulness literature, you know, researchers like Judson Brewer, maybe you've encountered him. I know him well. Yeah, great, great. Uh, great guy. He was on my podcast. Um, yeah. But he's, his research is so focused on the, the neuroscience of the mindfulness mental state. And so therefore, within that context, he shows a reduction in what's called the default mode brain network. But in the creativity literature, the activation of the default mode network is considered great. <laughs> it, it's almost like in the different literatures, you know, the, the different states of consciousness are kind of championed in different ways. Like Judson Brewer, I feel like he gets really excited when he shows a reduction in the default mode network. He's like, there, it means we're not so caught up in our, in our self-narratives. It means we're not so... But in the creativity literature, to be caught up in the flow state and to be fully in line with your default mode network is a beautiful, beautiful thing for uh, for creative expression of your being. So anyway, I think there's a way to obviously integrate and to uh, to 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 be very contextual and nuanced about all of this. But what pains me is when I see it as either one or the other. Uh, yeah. That that's what pains me. Yeah. Yeah. There are two Greek myths which I think illustrate something. <laughs> you, 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 can, you can see what they illustrate, but I use them sometimes as examples. So you know the myth of Sisyphus is you know, yes. pushing the rock up the hill endlessly yes. and it falls down. And, and Stephen Mitchell, you know who he is? He's a no. poet, a writer, a translator. He's, he's, done a lot, he's done a lot of very interesting work. So he wrote a poem about myth of Sisyphus, mm. and he said basically Sisyphus is in love with his rock, <laughs> you know, and really all he has to do is step aside, let it roll to the bottom, and go home. Okay, so just hold that for a moment. Mm. The other myth is of Icarus, you know, who got you know wanted to fly and created these wings of wax, and mm. his father says. Be careful, don't fly too close to the sun. Mm. But he got so excited, he flew close to the sun, the, max, the wax melted, fell to the earth. Mm. Okay, so these two myths represent different ways we can apply or, or misapply spiritual practice. Mm. So we're all, we're all in a Sisyphean situation of dealing with suffering in our lives mm. right? of all of all kinds it's the first noble truth of the buddhist teaching you know that's good the question is and it's possible and we see this often as people come to meditate in a way we can fall in love with our suffering we just mm. get so enmeshed in our personal story so true you know, just entangled in our suffering I see that everywhere these days. Yes. So some teaching which would point to the empty nature of it all, 
you know, the selfless nature of it all could help free the mind from that entanglement with the suffering. You know, we begin to see the freedom in the midst of it. Hmm. But sometimes people become like Icarus and they hear a teaching about the ultimate emptiness of everything. You know, we might call it, sometimes it's phrased, Sisyphus is building the practice from below and Icarus is swooping from above. Hmm. You know, so there are a lot of teachings which swoop from above, hmm. you know, which go right to the, empty nature of everything. But if they do that without having been grounded in working with the suffering that's there, mm. that's like Icarus flying too close to the sun mm. because they have not genuinely realized that emptiness. It, mm. It's either partial or conceptual, but they're using it. And so in both ways, we can get caught either too attached to our suffering mm. or too attached to emptiness. Mm. And so our path has to see the value of both yeah. and apply each of those at the appropriate times. So I don't, I don't see it as one or the other. It's like these are complementary perspectives that can help to free us in different ways. And we have to be very skillful in how, we, how we're employing the various understandings. See, I really like that approach. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of my favorite products that helps support my body and mind as I age. On the Psychology Podcast, we frequently talk about forms of wisdom and self-actualization that are often achieved in our 30s and 40s or even older. But it can be frustrating to finally know what you want out of life just as you start to lose the mental and physical energy to go get it. A culprit of decreasing energy, slower workout recovery, and general middle-aged symptoms that start showing up in our 30s is sentient cell accumulation. Sentient cells are sometimes called zombie cells because they're old, worn-out cells no longer doing their job in our bodies, but they linger on in us after we want them gone, wasting our energy and nutrition. Qualio Senolytic is an amazing formula made by Neurohacker Collective, a company I really trust. I've known the folks at Neurohacker Collective for years now, and they really are thoughtful about what they put into their products, always trying to be as science-informed as possible. Qualio Senolytic combines nine vegan, non-GMO, plant-derived ingredients that help your body eliminate sentient cells. Personally, it helps me operate with the wisdom of a 40-something with the mental and physical energy of a 20-something. The best part is you take Qualia Senolytic just two days a month. It's so easy and so helpful to the human aging process. To try Qualia Senolytic up to 50% off, backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, go to neurohacker.com and use code PSYCHPODCAST15 for an additional 15% off. That's Qualia Senolytic for better aging and prime energy deep into life at neurohacker.com slash psychpodcast slash psych15. I would argue sometimes it is very valuable and leading to less suffering 
to not, you know, when a lion's coming running at you to be to thinking about your thoughts. <laughs> well, let me enter a mindfulness practice, you know, as this lion's, that's not going to lead to great, greater, to, to less suffering. <laughs> and then, but I would also argue that on the other hand, there are times where getting lost in your self-narrative can be beneficial and can we either, I mean, you can, I'm sure we, we can come up with examples where we want to, for instance, compassion. All the research I've seen shows that the default mode network is so important for perspective taking because we have difficulty having compassion for another human if we don't relate ourselves in some way to the suffering we're seeing of someone else. Mary Helen Imerdino Yang has showed that so beautifully in her neuroscience research. So we want to make a connection between ourselves and the world uh, in, in moments. And so anyway, I, I love that contextual i love what you just said <laughs> and i guess it does irk me and i just wanted to say that on the record sometimes when i see different silos getting a little too caught in their own yes the thing they study do you know what i mean yes. the, the, exactly. yeah, I know yeah. exactly what you mean <laughs> yeah that's all i'm saying i, I know you you came across I mean, this, this was a burning issue for me within the context of different Buddhist traditions, mm. which I wrote about in, in my book, One Dharma, mm. because I was studying with different teachers of different traditions, both great masters, seemingly great enlightened beings, saying opposite things. Right, right. What do you do with that? <laughs> well, that was my koan for a couple of months, and it was burning. Mm. I mean, it, because it felt like the whole direction of my life depended on figuring out who was right. Yeah. And as I was burning with that question, I was, on a, I was on a two month retreat, it got resolved in a really interesting way. And I framed it kind of in a phrase, metaphysics as skillful means, mm. rather than as statements of truth. Mm. Because if we take metaphysical statements as being statements of truth, then if people are saying opposite things, yeah. One will be right and one will be wrong. Good. If we take them as skillful means, and then we could ask skillful means for what? Well, in the Buddhist context, it could be skillful means for not clinging. Hmm. Then it doesn't matter whether they're saying opposite things. If that metaphysical statement helps free people from clinging, great. If the other one helps people free themselves from clinging, great. And different systems will attract or appeal to different people. Hmm. But it's, again, if the important point is seeing them as skillful means. Yes. Then we can really embrace lots of different methods, lots of different metaphysics, if we understand where they're leading or what the practice of them accomplishes. Yeah, that's really good. It seems like so much of Buddhist principles are actually in line with the flow state of being, of being itself. You know, the idea that um, when you live your life with inner beauty, uh, and I love that whole concept of inner beauty, and I think we need to value that a lot more in our society today. When you live with a life of where you, you're, you're happy to look at yourself in the mirror, you know, you're proud of yourself, you know, not, you know, is pride is a non-virtue, but healthy pride for for being moral you know for for making the right decisions yes. there's less of a friction you know, there's a that's that's what i'm saying by flow of being there's you know yeah, you're not so in, unhindered by this 
you know, your guilt and your guilt, guilt can really get in the way of being in the flow state, you know, of being itself. So it just feels like a lot of what the Buddha is saying is not only in line with a mindfulness state of consciousness where you're always witnessing your, you know, your thought, but also just a, a way of being that's very flow like. Yeah. But, but again, what did I do wrong? <laughs> what did I well, say? You, you, I was close. I, I, I was I, close. I, I almost got it. I almost got it. <laughs> I may be misinterpreting what you said, but what I was hearing, it's almost like you were comparing the two states in a way instead of seeing that really we're cultivating both simultaneously. They work together. Mindfulness yes. and concentration yes. can be there together so that there's both the flow and the awareness or you could say metacognition or whatever you however you want to describe being aware of what's happening as well as being in what's happening well that's a great insight and you know in, in within the buddhist framework they talk about the qualities of mind they talk about the factors of enlightenment yeah. basically there are different lists, but the shorter of the two lists are the seven factors of mind, which have to be cultivated and in balance. Yes. So this is a whole combination of qualities that are integrated in, I think you called it the inner beauty or the... Inner beauty, yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it's not either we're in the flow or we're mindful or with this or that. It's all of it together. But is that always the case? I mean, can't you? No, be, not not necessarily. You can be in like if you are if you are just a moral human, and that is like you don't need to like make an effort to be moral. Like you really you're, you you've gotten to a point in your life where you automatically start to make decisions in line with your deeper right. principles and values. You're not. It's not like every moment you're stopping and thinking to yourself. Oh, let me be mindful. Am I being moral? I, I feel like there are moments where we can get into grooves or positive habits <laughs> positive habits right yes but uh, so in the buddhist psychology they talk about prompted and unprompted consciousness two different so oh. two different two different ways a moment of consciousness emerges hmm. so when we're first practicing something it's prompted you know, and it's like, okay, we have to keep coming back and reminding ourselves. So. But at a certain point of development, it becomes unprompted. Yes. Where it's just happening spontaneously. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. Yes. But that doesn't mean that that quality is not there. It just means it doesn't mean that the mindfulness is not there. It means oh. that the mindfulness then is unprompted. It's just part of how we're living. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. You know. Good. Yeah, I mean, it becomes, I mean, when something is unprompted, I'll give, I'll give you an example, a really simple example. So, you know, in our meditation practice, we do both sitting and walking mm. as the primary. So people often give, think that the sitting is the real stuff yeah. and the walking is just like a recess between sittings. <laughs> right. that, that is to really miss... I love the walking practice. I have to, mm. so many insights have come in walking. Mm. And it's the way of really integrating mindfulness into one's daily life because we move a lot. Mm. So in the beginning, 
it really was prompted, you know, they had to do the formal walking meditation exercises, slowing down and really intentionally being mindful of each step. But at a certain point of development, it really becomes unprompted. So, for example, now, after all these years of practice, when I walk, that's the default. Mm. It's just automatically the movements are being known. You know, I'm aware of them. And it doesn't take any prompting. It's right. just there. It's, so that then becomes in the flow state. Yeah. There's an ease of being. Exactly. Exactly. Which I love. I love that. I love yes. having an ease of being. Now I'm not. It's not the same thing. Not to be confused as laziness, though. Let's be. <laughs> let's be clear. That's that. That wasn't. That wasn't a euphemism for. No, I, I love it I, when I don't have to do anything hard. Um, <laughs> you get it. You get it, Joseph Goldstein. Uh, let me end this interview talking about um, a word that I am obsessed with: equanimity. It's a concept that I. You know, there's a lot of talk about grit. And in my book, Transcend, I, I argued, I really like the flavor of equanimity better than grit sometimes, the way, the way at least the grit, the way it's, it's, it's applied. You know, grit has this kind of connotation that you just, you're, you, no matter the consequences on others, you're kind of just churning out and, and persevering and you're climbing to the top of the mountain. And, and even if you climbed on top of other people on the way there, you still score high <laughs> on grit. But equanimity, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I, what I, uh, my understanding of the concept of equanimity is it, it is very much tied to having resiliency and being able to withstand life's challenges. But there's a sort of way of being baked into it of warmth and um, love. And my readings is there is some warmth there to a certain degree and a sort of awareness of the impact of your being on others, even as your. Um, surmounting the obstacles. So, is is any of that true? What I just said? I uh, yeah, I think I think it is. There's a large grain of truth. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm I'm just trying to to let, let's just try this out. And I, I don't know whether this will reflect at least some aspect of what you just said. But sure. let's try. I it. think it might. I think it might. So it's highlighting the difference between reactivity and responsiveness. Hmm. So in a situation, we're just in different life situations. And normally people are just reactive based on their own personalities and conditioning. Uh, and in that reactive state, it can very often be born out of unwholesome mind states. Mm. You know, we're reacting either with anger or with fear or with greed or whatever. There's a situation and there's that reactivity. So that's not equanimity. We could almost say reactivity is the opposite of equanimity. Mm. So equanimity, in the, for the purpose of this, this little discussion, I think responsiveness captures it more. Mm. Because responsiveness, in my experience, the, the feeling of responsiveness comes when we're not being reactive, and there's just an, um, kind of an immediate, intuitive... You might call it warmth or mm. connectedness. Mm. You see somebody who's hungry, you feed them. You, you're in just different situations, and you're responsive to the situation, but not based on your reactive conditioning. Mm. 
but based on equanimity really means impartiality. You know, we're, we're, we're so it's often likened to space, but a responsive space. You know, it's a space that can hold everything. And so it sees all the sides of everything. Yeah, and I, I've just, I've just um, really appreciated for myself the retranslation of compassion to, to responsiveness. Mm. But that, that compassion doesn't necessarily have to be a particular feeling. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh said, compassion is a verb, hmm. right? Be- because it's that movement to help in, or to respond, you know, in the best way possible. So that does have that quality of warmth to it. And it really comes out of the ground of equanimity rather than the ground of reactivity. Because the reactivity really hinders that. But it can still lead to resilience and being able that to... That what can lead to resilience? Equanimity. Equanimity. Can oh, absolutely. It, yeah. it is completely resilient. Yeah. Be- because it's like empty space that just is responding to whatever is arising. So I think it's the essence of resiliency. Yeah, I do too. I do too. But it just, okay. like, in a way, that is aware aware of your surroundings that's what uh, I, yes i like about it <laughs> yes 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 um you've uh made a point in one of your interviews about the kind of wisdom that the society needs right now because we, we live in such a polarized country right now put in so many different ways um and you argued we equanimity and compassion were the two biggies um so I was trying to get us there, you know, yeah. to, to end this interview, but I, I love that. Do you want to expound at all on what a deep integration of those two look like and how it can help us listen more to each other's pain? Because I do feel like there's so much kind of uh, siloed uh, yeah. victimhood, <laughs> so to speak, right now. That we're not listening yeah. to other people's pains. Yeah. Well, so kind of to simplify it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, in, in, within the Buddhist teachings, it's said that compassion arises when we're willing to come close to suffering, whether it's our own or somebody else's. Well, that's... And this is not a given because of very habituated responses. We see suffering and we don't like it. You know, it's unpleasant. We want to get rid of it. We don't want to come close to it. Right? Mm. But that closes off the wellspring of compassion. So compassion requires coming close to it or letting it in. That's made possible by equanimity, by non-reactivity. When when the mind is in balance and open and spacious and space-like, then we're not in a reactive, aversive or denial role with respect to suffering. We're just there, and we are letting it in, coming close to it, and that's precisely what gives rise to compassionate response. You know, so the two really work together. I'll just give you kind of a personal example of this. Um, This goes back many years to my days in India. When I was practicing, and anybody who's been there knows 
they're just a lot of wild dogs in pitiable conditions, just starving and mange and just terrible, terrible conditions. Mm. So I'd be, I was there practicing, and then in between retreats, I'd go into the town, you know, and sit in a little chai shop, tea shop, have tea, some sweets, just relaxing. And often there would be these wild, mangy, suffering dogs coming up. And I saw two very different responses in my mind. Sometimes, ah, I just don't want to deal with it. I just want to have my tea and sweets. You know, and I could feel myself just trying to close it, close it off, mm. you know, or shut it out. And so it got just into my contracted space, thinking that that's what would make me happy. I just want to enjoy my, enjoy my tea. Yeah. At other times, I'd be sitting there, and I'd just be in a different space and really let it in. I'd, mm. So I'd see the dogs and really take it in. Mm. And the response then was, so I would just, you know, toss up a little scrap of food. Or I, I would be responding to the suffering. It's not that it solved the problem of, you know, all these wild dogs in India, but in the moment, it was a compassionate response. Mm. And it all happened because I let the suffering in as opposed to keeping it out. That's good. You know, and so I think it's really interesting. You know, what do we do when we pass homeless people on the street? Or different, there are a million different situations of suffering that we may not, part of our minds may not want to open. It's, too much. I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> Just let me let me live my life. But that is a very contracted space. Then when we're open to it, then there's a responsiveness, whatever it may be. Mm. You know, and I mean it could be something really small or very little. Maybe it's making eye contact with the homeless person. Something. You know, it doesn't have to be solving the whole problem, but there's a connection. I love that. And that connection is coming out of some sense of compassion. We've let the suffering in and there's a responsiveness to it. So that's where equanimity and compassion really serve each other and support each other. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Um, at the very beginning of this interview, you defined, you revised your revised definition of enlightenment as lightening up. I've noticed, just a personal observation, I've noticed that profound narcissists very rarely laugh at themselves oh exactly they're so serious <laughs> yes. i mean they're they're very they might joke at the expense of someone else yes but you very rarely see them lighten up their self yes yeah exactly so look i'm just bringing this whole interview full circle to end here you know i think that if everyone lightened up a little bit in our society today you know we we could lower our ego and and let in the suffering of others um, and put that within our circle, you know? Yes, of, yes. Of what's valuable and what's in our attention that we want to pay attention to and to help. And the world would probably be a better place. So, Absolutely. Just to integrate everything into our, there today, we talked about it at the end, but thank you so much. You are so full of wisdom. And um, I can say that. I know I'm, you would never say that to me, but, you know, you're so humble. You're, but... I, I really do think you are so full of wisdom, and I, I consider it an absolute honor to be able to talk to you today. So thank okay. you. Well, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.